0: might try to use this one because uh, I just realised the fonts in these Bibles are a bit small for these <laughs> these days. So I might have to go and get a, uh, a large font Bible so I can actually uh, uh, read it. Um, so we're going to be looking at uh, two uh, Bible verses today. So the first one is from the Old Testament, uh, Exodus. So that's right at the beginning of the Bible. So if you turn to page 69, uh, we'll be reading from Exodus chapter 16. And so just to give you a little bit of background while you're turning to page 69... Uh, God has saved his people from Egypt. Uh, They've gone through uh, the Red Sea, uh, again, through saving by God. And they're heading out into the desert. Um, And so we pick them up in the desert. Of course, when you're in the desert, there's not a lot of uh, food or water. And so God's saying, trust in me. Uh, If I've saved you, um, I'm going to deliver you through uh, the desert. So that's where we pick up today's story. So join with me from Exodus, chapter 16, starting at verse 1. They set out from Elam, and all the congregation of the people of Israel came to the wilderness of Sin, which is between Elam and Sinai, on the fifteenth day of the second month, after they had departed from the land of Egypt. And the whole congregation of the people of Israel grumbled against Moses and Aaron in the wilderness, When the Lord gives you in the evening meat to eat, and in the morning bread to the full, because the Lord has heard your grumbling, that you grumble against him, what are we? Your grumbling is not against us, but against the Lord. Then Moses said to Aaron, Say to the whole congregation of the people of Israel, Come near before the Lord, for he has heard your grumbling. And as soon as Aaron spoke to the whole congregation of the people of Israel, they looked towards the wilderness and behold, the glory of the Lord appeared in the cloud. And the Lord said to Moses, I have heard the grumbling of the people of Israel. Say to them, at twilight you shall eat meat, and in the morning you shall be filled with bread. Then you shall know that I am the Lord your God. So now we're going to jump all the way over to Philippians, so towards the end of the Bible this time. So, Uh, We're going to be reading from chapter 2, starting at verse 12, and that's on page 1180. So 1180, chapter 2 of the letter to the Philippians, starting at verse 12. I'm not sure I can do justice. I think that uh, children's story is pretty marvellous this morning, Uh, but we'll be reading about those two gentlemen uh, this morning in today's Bible reading. And just so you know, so here Paul is actually referring to the Philippians church as his beloved, as he, as he loved them in verse 12 as I read. Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now, not only as in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure I am glad and rejoice with you likewise you also should be glad and rejoice with me i hope in the lord jesus to send timothy to you soon so that i too may be cheered by news of you for i have no one like him who will be genuinely concerned for your welfare they all seek their own interests not those of jesus christ but you know timothy's proven worth how as a son with a Father, he has served with me in the Gospel. I hope, therefore, to send him just as soon as I see how it will go with me, as I trust in the Lord that, surely, I myself will come also. I have thought it necessary to send you Epaphroditus, my brother and fellow worker and fellow soldier, and your messenger and minister to my need. For he has been longing for you all, risking his life to complete what was lacking in your service to me.
1: Good morning everyone, uh, is that on? Can you hear me, good. Great to see you all this morning. It is uh, good to be with you again. It's been a while, isn't it, since I've been down here. And so if you don't know me, my name is Rod. I'm uh, one of the pastors at Wild Street St. Matt's, and so it's just great to be able to spend another morning with you. As it was great on Wednesday night, I think, to be able to pray together here uh, at the prayer meeting, which is a fantastic get-together of all of our congregations, and to be able to come before God in prayer together was a great encouragement. So uh, I, I hope you enjoyed it as well and found it as helpful as I did. <clears throat> We're well, we continuing our series in Philippians, uh, and so keep your Bibles open where we just read then. Thanks, Andrew, for reading uh, for us this morning. I'm going to pray and ask God to help us as we listen together to his word this morning. As we gather together this morning, we do so knowing that you are the God of all the world, that everyone bows the knee to you because you are Lord of all and our, our very lives are in your hands. And so as we look this morning, we pray, Lord God, that you might encourage us in it, that you would grow us to know you better and so to live for you. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, can I just say that uh, there are some scary words for me into uh, today's passage this morning. Uh, Workout. Uh, You know, I know some of you probably think that I'm a fine physical specimen, uh, standing up here before you this morning, in no need of a workout, but can I assure you that neither my wife nor my three children would agree with you, and I really think that's because they tell me often, uh, especially my children. But in recent times, I have been making more of an attempt to do some exercise, and it, it's reminded me that uh, getting fit, maintaining a healthy body, actually takes hard work. Um, there can be body soreness, there can be the laziness that comes with having to get up early, all those kind of things. Being fit and healthy doesn't come easy. Uh, you've got to work at it. That is, you don't It's purely because of your genes. You've got to work at it. Uh, and when people who look like andy do tell me that i really ought to work out a bit do some exercise i generally like to point them to one of my favorite verses of scripture where the apostle paul says in 1 timothy chapter 4 verses 7 8 he says train yourself to be godly for physical training is of some value but godliness has value for all things holding promise for both the present life and the life to come Uh, but here's the point really Achieving a healthy spiritual life is similar to achieving a healthy physical life, but strenuous effort, time. I was chatting with a fellow Christian just a little while ago, and he confessed to me that he didn't feel like he had grown as a Christian for quite a long time. Now, I'm guessing he's not alone. Uh, Why do many Christians at times feel like stagnating? You know, perhaps we feel defeated by some particular sin. Uh, maybe we find ourselves lacking in motivation to get along to our growth group. Uh, maybe we lack the desire or energy to serve others. Perhaps reading our Bible and praying just doesn't seem <clears throat> you know why do some Christians never seem to make progress? Well, I think Paul in this passage because you know, gyms and personal trainers, boot camps, running clubs, cycling clubs. Uh, we know they're everywhere now, aren't they, with people invested in working out to keep their physical condition in good shape. You know, we know, don't we, that a healthy physical life doesn't happen without investing in it, without working on it, it and yet, so why would we expect to have a healthy, vital, joyful Christian life, why would we expect to have that without truly investing in it? The Christian life truly is a workout, uh, and it should be. And if it's not for you, then it's likely that your spiritual muscles are in atrophy. That is, they're weakening and wasting away, and you may be in danger of spiritual malfunction. But you see, that's not what God wants for us, is it? That's quite clear in this passage. Um, I wonder if you remember the, uh, the key thing or the most important thing that Paul asked of the Philippian church in last week's passage. The one thing that Paul wanted of the Philippians was that their manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ, chapter 1, verse 27. And so the challenge to work continues in the passage that's before us today. Now, I think it's worth noting that Paul is fleshing out that one phrase ...of worthy living in chapter 1, verse 27, right through to the end of chapter 2. Now, it might be actually worth a quick recap before we move on... ...because Paul points out a number of things that the challenge to worthy living entails. So, back in chapter 1, 27 to 30, worthy living... uh, ...there, he encourages firm in the face of opposition... ...that is, striving for the gospel together without being afraid of opposition. Or in chapter 2, verse 1 to 14, the challenge to worthy living... Uh, is where he makes an appeal for a common mind. How? Well, he says we are to have the same mind as that of Christ in verse 2 of chapter 2. And then in chapter 2, verses 5, there Paul draws our attention to the example of Christ crucified as the supreme model of being other person centered. And so then today he continues this call to worthy living in verses 12 to 18 with a challenge that is to work out your salvation. Now, have a look at what he says there in verse 12. He says, Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now, not only as in my presence, but much more in my absence, work salvation with fear and trembling. Now, at first, I think Paul's command uh, here sounds a little bit wrong to our evangelical Christian ears. Uh, We're not saved by the works that we do, but in Christ's. Uh, it's not new for me to say that there's nothing that we can do that would enable us to earn our salvation the reminder isn't it because our salvation is all that is completely and utterly the work of god that is he sought us out he sent his son who willingly bore our punishment and shame on the cross he offers us forgiveness and mercy he chose us and calls us to be his children He declares us to be in the right with Him. And the only way that we can escape God's righteous anger and punishment for our sin, that is the only way that we can be saved, is by believing that He, that is God, has done it all. Jesus has done it all for us. And so everything that is needed for us to be right with God, then He has done through the death and resurrection of Jesus. And so, therefore, it's by faith alone, trusting in Jesus only that we are saved. Now, perhaps that's actually news to you. Perhaps you'd like to find out more about that. And if that's the case, we'd love to talk to you. I and mean, Andy would love to talk to you, but you could talk to anybody here, I'd imagine, if you'd like to find out more about that. But Paul, in fact, uh, he's already made it clear earlier in this letter that it's God who begins the good work in us, and it's God who brings it to completion. And so what does he mean? Well, first let me point out one thing that it can't mean. It can't mean that God saves you and welcomes you into his kingdom, but then you've got to work to stay in his kingdom, to stay saved. Now, that's not possible, given that it's God who begins and ends his good work of salvation in us. It's his work from beginning to end. We, we don't kind of form the kingdom in and out of salvation, depending on what kind of... day we've had or how good or bad Christian life and So many people I think actually live Stunted Christian lives because of this particular error in thinking. I mean there was a time in my own life when I used to spend more time Worrying about whether I was in or out of God's kingdom because of my constant failures rather than rejoicing that my salvation is secure so that I can give my attention to living in a manner that is worthy of Christ. And so what does Paul mean then when he says that we had to work out our salvation? Well, can I just say, I think that the way it's written is a little confusing in English. It's actually better, I think, to say, instead of work out your own salvation, it's actually better to say, outwork your own salvation. Work out how your salvation operates in everyday life. What are the outworkings of being saved? It's not let go and let God. It's work out with God. And Paul kind of makes it clear that to live a life that is worthy of Christ actually requires hard work, the on- continuous, strenuous effort. <clears throat> and so, if we're going to live God-honoring, Christ-worthy Christian lives, then we can't just sit back and think that it will happen all by itself. We have to work at it. We have to put in the Hard yards of knowing what pleases God and then working hard at doing it. But notice what he does go on to say in verse 13. He says, Work out your own salvation with fear and trembling, for or because it is God who works in you, both to work for his good pleasure. Now, the incentive for us to work is primarily because God is at work in us that is our incentive he is at work in us at the level of our hearts and minds and wills and our actions to achieve his good purposes he's not just interested in our conversion becoming a christian he's interested in our entire lives lived out to his glory it's the reason that we shouldn't lose heart and give up when we fail even if we do it over and again because god won't give up on us we need to actually draw encouragement from that reality and then persevere. It's the same with physical exercise, isn't it? I mean, there are times we don't feel like going for a run or we don't feel like getting up early to have a swim before work or we're tired and the body's a bit sore, but we know that if we keep at it, that things will improve. And so we can even be even more certain in our Christian lives that we will grow more like Christ as we keep at trusting Jesus living his way, not giving up, not being lazy. Why? Because God is at work in us, guaranteeing to bring about his good purposes in us. However, the the reason it's with fear and trembling that we work out our salvation is because we know that, uh, that this Jesus, who humbled himself to be put to death for our salvation, has been exalted to unequaled glory and power as the Lord of the universe. And because the time is coming when every knee will bow uh, and every tongue will confess that he is Lord. So the first time he came, he came as our saviour. And now's the time that we should recognise that. But the next time that he comes, it will be as our Lord and judge. And yet as Christians, we don't wait until then, do we? We bow to him as Lord in our lives now. And so instead of bowing to our comfort or security or happiness or success or status, I mean, those things want you to bow to them. But instead, we bow to Jesus as our Lord. And so the question that remains is, how? How do we go about working out our salvation? Uh, the answer to that question from this passage is that we go about working out our salvation the same way as Christ by other person-centeredness. Now Christ's whole manner of life, remember, was for the sake of others. He didn't demand his rights. He didn't stand with pride on his credentials as a means to secure our adoration and obedience. He didn't enforce his authority. He came to serve us. He didn't insist on his own interests, but he humbly operated in our best interests. And so if we're to kind of work out our salvation by other person-centeredness, then it makes sense of what Paul says next. Look at verse 14. He says, Do all things without grumbling or questioning, that you may be blameless and innocent children of God, without blemish, in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation, among whom you shine as lights in the world, holding fast to the word of life. Do all things without grumbling or questioning. Now, it's staggering, isn't it, that, that God's people are prone to grumbling even after all that he has done for us. But it's not new, is it? I mean, we saw it, didn't we, in our Old Testament reading of Exodus after God had just rescued Israel from slavery in Egypt. And barely a month has passed and they're grumbling and complaining at Moses about food and water. And in re- reality, God says, it's not you they're grumbling at Moses, but it's me. See, after the incredible things that God had done for them in rescuing them, and yet when they don't immediately get what they want, they grumble and complain. I mean, the selfish complaining of unbalanced criticism in small matters, of impatience when we don't understand, or of unwillingness to be helpful. It kind of takes place both in our thought life, what we think about someone or something, But our grumbling and questioning is also often expressed outwardly. Even if it's only on the way home in the car. Maybe even in front of the children if we have any. I mean, grumbling and questioning is what we end up doing when we're not working out our salvation with fear and trembling. When Paul says that we shouldn't do it, it actually makes perfect sense, doesn't it? That that is, if we are really to be, other person-centered? I mean, grumbling and questioning normally surface when we're discontent, when things aren't going our way. In fact, self-centeredness is normally the root cause of this kind of questioning and grumbling. But what we're called to, of course, is to be other person-centered. Now, I'm actually convinced that, that this is one of the hardest areas of life to be blameless and innocent children of God. I mean, generally, Christians know that it's wrong to behave like this. But instead of repenting, of turning away from our behavior and asking God's forgiveness, we just kind of repress our behavior. So in other words, we kind of hold back our outward grumbling, except perhaps to a spouse or close friend. That is, we kind of repress our feelings, but we don't repent. We still harbor those complaints and criticisms and impatience in our thought life. The problem is, of course, that our our negative thought life twists and distorts us, and eventually our increasing discontent does bubble over into our outward expression. And we do start making accusations, or we gossip, gossip, or we put people down. We grumble. And perhaps we start to make excuses for not turning up to something or being involved. We take the high ground and, and quickly find fault, but never actually deal with things as we should as Christians. And the disturbing result is that we end up looking more like this crooked and twisted generation rather than standing out as lights in the midst of it. And so our manner of life at that point is unworthy of the gospel of Christ. And so we need to work out our salvation in the same way as Christ by being other people-centered. I mean, if the Philippians weren't sure what that would look like, then Paul actually, notice here, Paul gives them... An example of two shining lights, who we've already met this morning, haven't we? Timothy and Epaphroditus are examples of worthy Christian partners. Now, let me just pick it up, if we can, there in verse 19. Paul says, I hope in the Lord Jesus to send Timothy to you soon, so that I too may be cheered by news of you, for I have no one like him who will be genuinely concerned for your welfare. They all seek their own interests, not those of Jesus Christ. But you know Timothy's proven worth, how, as a son with a father, he has served with me in the gospel. I hope, therefore, to send him just as soon as I see how it will go with me. And I trust in the Lord that shortly I myself will come also. Now, what a what a great commendation Paul gives here to Timothy. I have no one like him, Paul says. Now, that doesn't mean that there are no other godly people around Paul. But Timothy actually sets the standard high when it comes to other person-centeredness. Timothy looks out for Christ's interest, not his own. His genuine interest in the welfare of the Philippians amounts to genuine interest in Christ. And so Timothy has has actually learnt his attitude from Paul, like the patron saint of who who thinks correctly about himself. Timothy had served with Paul like a son in the family business. But even more importantly... Timothy was a follower of Christ, who humbled himself for the sake of others. The other person Paul draws the Philippians' attention to here is their own leader, to Epaphroditus. Uh, look Look at what he says about him in verse 25. He says, I have thought it necessary to send to you Epaphroditus, my brother and fellow worker and fellow soldier and your messenger and minister to my need. For he has been longing for you all and has been distressed because you heard that he was ill. Indeed, he was ill, near to death. But God had mercy on him, and not only on him, but on me also, lest I should have sorrow upon sorrow. I am the more eager to send him, therefore, that you may rejoice at seeing him again, and that I may be less anxious. So receive him in the Lord with all joy, and honor such men. For he nearly died for the work of Christ, risking his life to complete what was lacking in your service to me. Paul has great affection for Epaphroditus, doesn't he? Fellow worker and fellow soldier. I mean, as an expression of their partnership, the Philippian church had not only sent money to Paul, but they'd also been able to minister to any of Paul's needs and also with Paul in the cause of the gospel. And in doing so, Epaphroditus had gambled his life. He exposed his own life to danger for the sake of being with Paul. That is, he was willing to die for the work of Christ. And even though he did nearly die his concern wasn't for himself he was more concerned that the Philippian Christians back home had heard about it and his concern is that they would be concerned for him honor such men Paul says what is it about these men that we're to honor well they are concrete visible examples of what Paul has taught that is as we saw in chapter 2 verse 7 They are all like Jesus who made himself nothing taking the form of a servant humbling himself. I mean there's no church called St. Epaphroditus, at least not one that I'm aware of. Uh, He and Timothy and Paul are all examples of humble servants who are other people centered. They reach for the tower not for the top. See how is your manner of life honoring the gospel of Jesus Christ? How is your manner of life furthering The gospel of jesus christ are you letting your light shine by your other person centeredness in the midst of this crooked and twisted generation you know imitation is the way we learn most things in life uh, whether it's the australian accent uh, some sporting ability even much of our behavior which is why our parents for example are often concerned about uh, who their kids hang out with you know they want them to be influenced by positive role models. And as our kids get older, uh, parental influence diminishes and peer influence increases. And so if our teenager hangs out with selfish, arrogant, violent, lazy peers, then the odds increase that they will develop similar attitudes. And so Paul has held up Epaphroditus and Timothy as well as himself and ultimately Christ as shining lights whom the Philippians would do well to imitate if they are to let their own lights shine. Who are you going to follow? Who are you going to learn the Christian life from? Given that much of it is modelled to us. Now, of course, Paul and the Lord Jesus himself are our best and foremost examples. However, can you identify any shining lights among us here at St. Matt's that you can learn from? I want to suggest that there are many here whom we can benefit from seeing their example. Do they put their own needs aside for the sake of the gospel? Are they flexible for the sake of the gospel? Are they generous with their time for the sake of the gospel? Are they generous with their money for the sake of the gospel? Are they peacemakers for the sake of the gospel? Do they help without being asked? Are they interested in the well-being of others? Are they humble or are they, are they too busy asking after others rather than being offended that no one has asked after them are they doing good for others spiritually you know, they're the kind of people to look out for to honor and to follow as they follow Christ I mean, imagine the impact on our community if we all committed ourselves to looking out for the interests of Christ to being other person-centered you see, if we do that We really will shine like lights in this crooked and twisted world. But if we thought that Paul simply wanted us to knuckle down and try harder, then we would be wrong in this passage. Yes, working out your salvation or living a a worthy Christian life does require continuous, strenuous effort until the day you die or until Christ returns. It is wise to read your Bible so that God can be speaking to you and for you to be speaking to him every day. Make it a daily habit that is more important than any exercise routine that you've got set up. Read good Christian books. There are bad ones, so check if you're not sure. But meet up with someone to read the Bible together and spur each other on in your Christian lives. Prepare for growth group each week, not only so that you get more out of it, But because you'll be helping others as well but remember this you are God's workmanship if you're a Christian it's because God began a good work in you and he is actively engaged in completing what he has started in your life but if you belong to Christ then you need to be more than a spectator at an event you've got to get off the bench and get yourself into the game of living a life that is worthy of the Lord. What an investment Jesus has made in building up his church, in going to the cross for us, in rising to give us new life. What investment have I made? Let's pray together. Our gracious God, we thank you for all that you have done for us in sending your own son, the Lord Jesus Christ, to be our saviour. Father, we thank you that we, as we come before you now, we do so knowing that you have begun a good work in us and a work that you have promised to complete. And so, Father, we pray that we would be the kind of people that live such worthy lives in this world, that we bring honour to you. And we pray, Lord God, that we would be willing to work hard to try and understand what it means to live a life that is indeed pleasing to you, that is other person-centred, Please forgive us for the times that we fail to put others before ourselves. Help us to recognize, Lord God, that as we serve you, we serve the good purposes that you have for all of us. And so we ask your help as we do this together. In Jesus' name, amen.